Welcome to The Manly Catholic. In this podcast, we will inspire, challenge, and equip all men to become the men they were created to be. Join us as we journey together to become the best versions of ourselves and strive to change our communities one man at a time. I did want to touch briefly on bread and wine, so the actual physical substances of the Eucharist. So in the Old Testament, among the first fruits of the earth as a uh, bread and wine, sorry, were among the first fruits of the earth as a sign of thanksgiving and acknowledgement to the Creator. Um, this kind of is manifested in Jesus' miracles of multiplication of the loaves. So it prefigures the multiplication of the Eucharist. Uh, Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana announces his glorification, makes manifest the fulfillment of the wedding feast in the Father's kingdom, where the faithful will drink the new wine that has become the blood of Christ. Mm which is powerful, just those two things right there. Um, scripture is just jam-packed full of meaning and depth. You guys really need to, if you can get in a Bible study, just read it yourself, obviously, but if you can get right. a Bible study with a commentary, some sort of commentary, I mean, all this is unpacked for you. Um, connection to the Old Testament, you already talked about Father Dominic Manna in the desert with the Israelites wandering. That is kind of a, a prefigurement of yeah. the Eucharist. Uh, the priest Melchizedek, this is from Genesis 14, 18 through 20. Melchizedek is a type of Christ, the eternal high priest of the new covenant. He was the priest king who brought bread and wine to Abram and blessed him. This typology is repeated in the Psalms and recognized in Hebrews as well. And then Melchizedek is from Salem, the region that would become Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. His presence and that of the king of Sodom indicate that they recognize the patriarchy and blessing of Abraham. So again, just more in depth in the Old Testament, that was from Genesis. And again, Melchizedek was, he's talked about being a prefigurement of Christ, a Christ-like figure. And he was the one, he brought bread and wine. So again, you kind of see the Eucharist coming out there. Yeah, and what I like about, I mean, he's definitely like this <laughs> interesting figure in in scripture. So doing a little deep diving into Melchizedek will unpack a lot of really cool stuff. And uh, cool stuff. That's a theological term. Cool yeah. stuff. This is what this is what a master's in divinity gets you. Cool you get some stuff. cool stuff. Yeah. Do you want a beer, by the way? Sure. Yeah. If there's an IPA in there, so I'm looking at uh, um, what what you read about Melchizedek, and Melchizedek still remains a very important figure in the, in the Catholic Church. So much so that in the Eucharistic prayer of the Mass, there's a long one. It's a Eucharistic prayer. It's where it's where the priest, after the offertory, he has all the gifts on the altar, and because there's 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 a variety of Eucharistic prayers. The Eucharistic prayer I'm talking about is the one that has all the saints in it. That's the one that some most parishioners will complain about because they have to, yeah, they have to stay they have to stay kneeling and they don't like it because mass was 60 minutes instead of 55 minutes because they have to get out of the parking lot before. Betty does, and she, they don't like Betty, you know. Betty, not I said Betty, not Betsy. I was at a con. I was, I was at a con. I want to make that. If your wife listened, I at at their conference we were at on leadership, they were using Betty as an example for many things. But anyway, so so Melchizedek is still is offered in the in the Eucharistic prayer, and the Eucharistic prayer is during the Eucharistic liturgy when we're about to receive the Eucharist. So Melchizedek plays a very important part in the Eucharist and even in the church today. So it's very important. 
So another connection is to the Passover. So if you guys did not know, Jesus instituted the Eucharist at the Last Supper during Passover. So what happened at Passover, the sacrifice of the lamb, and what is Jesus called? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus gave himself as the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate lamb, if you will. And so this, again, recalls to mind the Exodus meal, you know, the lamb of God, um, the, um, the oh, what was it? They took, did they take bread from the Egyptians on their way out? When the Egypt, they just took a bunch of stuff from the uh, Egyptians? It was unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. Yeah. Okay. Unleavened bread, meaning they didn't have time for the bread to rise. Right. They had to get moving, right? There's no time to wait. Like, this is Exodus. We're being freed. And, and, and this we got going. Yeah, this is freedom. So we're going. So, <clears throat> did you want to touch on anything? I was kind of just briefly connecting the Old Testament. No, I, I just, when I was looking at your notes, I wanted to say, you know, um, Dr. Brant Petrie and Dr. Scott Hahn have great stuff on the Eucharist. Mm. And a lot of what we talked about, you know, with manna in a desert, connections to the Old Testament, Melchizedek, the Passover. Uh, there's some very powerful resources out there. Scott Hahn does a lot of good work with it. And uh, actually, you know, doc, uh, Dr. Brant Petrie, P-I-R-T-R-E, I think, um, has a really good book and, and CDs on it too. Um, I think it's Jesus and the Jewish Youths of the Eucharist, or is it just Jewish Roots of the Eucharist? I've heard of that. Look that up. was very enlightening to me. That was very enlightening. And I know that Scott Hahn has some really good stuff on you know, the last supper as well too. So I would encourage you guys to, to pick that stuff up and, um, whatever, download it. Jesus and listen to it while you're driving. This is Dr. Brant Petrie's Jesus and the Jewish roots of Eucharist. Unlocking secrets. Unlocking secrets last supper. Yeah. So, yeah, that's it. That's, that's good. Good stuff right there. So, so I can, My throat is, I don't think I've recovered from that throat punch in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. <laughs> uh, well, you sound great. I, well, you're sounding good. I te- you know, you're having, your voice hasn't cracked no, today, so no, that's it hasn't. good. It hasn't. I, I had to edit that out last time. Okay, good. Oh, jeez, good. <laughs> no, no it, fe- it feels better, but it just, uh, I, hope, I hope it's not too annoying, still healing. I, uh, I teach at Harmel Academy for the Trades, which is a Catholic trade school. We teach them. Uh, various trades. I'm their metal fabrication and welding instructor as well as their chaplain, but I also teach Brazilian jiu-jitsu as well. And so I kind of got a, a forearm throat punch a couple weeks ago. And uh, when you bruise your throat, you know, when you bruise your, wherever your vocal cords are, I don't know, man, it takes a long time. should see the other guy though. Yeah, he's smiling. <laughs> I didn't do anything to him. Tap me out is what he did. You cried uncle. I did cry, Uncle. So now, anywho, in the New Testament, so this, full disclosure, so the Bread of Life discourse in John 6, that was what really changed my mind on the Eucharist, I guess you could say, even though, you know, like you talked about, it didn't really matter what I believe, it's still happening. But this really, I think my brain had a switch that was flipped. Yes. And it, Help me to fully understand, especially reading into the the wording that Jesus used too, which we'll get into. Did you say something? Well, I was going to ask you what 
Now, interesting statement. You know, something in your brain you said switched. Mm-hmm. Well, what was it before, and then what was it after? What was that switch? Well, yeah. So it was just symbolic. Because I'll tell you my switch when you're done. Yeah. So it was just symbolic. Growing up Protestant, it's like okay, he said this, yes, but without without diving deep into the grammar that Jesus used, and so studying that. So then I get into this, but it says. The word that Jesus used, um, it says, I am the living bread. This is from John six fifty one. that came down from heaven. Whoever eats the bread will live forever, and the bread that will give is my flesh for the life of the world. So when Jesus used the word flesh, he uses the Greek word sarx. Sorry if my Greek pronunciation is awful. To describe his flesh. So typically this word was used to describe actual flesh, first of all. And then when he used the word eat or to eat, he uses the Greek um, phago or Fago, again, sorry, which is um, fairly closely translated just to eat. Okay, so nothing crazy there. But then what's what's interesting is oh, that yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love this, and this is this is the switch. Okay, so then, so then you know people. This is a by the way, this is a huge crowd that was gathered around him, and he was giving this discourse, and so they were kind of murmuring, like, okay, that was kind of weird. Why did he say that? And so then people are questioning him. And then if you look at it, so when any people questioned him and they misinterpreted, Jesus always corrected them and said, no, it's not what I was talking about. Like, this is what I mean. And so then, but in this case, so they, they asked him, like, what do you mean, basically? And Jesus said to them, amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him on the last day. Yeah, he doubled down, didn't he? He doubled down. So now Jesus, he flipped the Greek word of eat to trogon, Mm. which is a very specific meaning, which means to gnaw on. I spelled gnaw wrong there. But to gnaw, to chew, or to crunch. Like an animal. Like an animal. So literally, this is my flesh. You need to eat it. And then what happened? Okay, and no other teaching... Did anyone leave him after what he just said? Many of his followers left him to the point that Jesus said to his disciples, something along the lines, I'm paraphrasing, but are you going to leave me too? And that's when Peter said, where are we, basically, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. So that to me was the turning point is because in no other teaching, so the Eucharist and the cross were the two things that Jesus lost the most followers, if you think about it. The Eucharist, he had all these followers. He tells them about the Eucharist. This is, you're literally going to be gnawing on my flesh, right? People are like, peace out. You are weird, man. I'm gone, okay? Except for basically the disciples, right? And a handful of others, I'm sure. And then the cross, like here is this, he called himself a king. He can't even save himself from the cross, you know, this guy just died. Like he said he was God, like, you know, jokes on him. And then he rose again. Okay. But he still lost all those followers who thought he was supposed to be this, this king, what they thought was going to be a king that was going to conquer and save them, free them from the Romans, a great military leader. And he dies. And how many people left him then? We don't know. It doesn't specifically well, say. I, that's awesome. I never. Okay. So the switch in your mind that you were talking about, that switch. Um, you fully unpacked it and that's exactly what happened to me too. But then you ended it, you ended it 
in a di- in different way. I've never I've never heard that. The cross was was like that of the Eucharist in terms of people leaving. I I never thought about that, but you're right. I always I always looked at the Eucharist at the at the bread of discourse life where Jesus says, "You know, eat my flesh, drink my blood." People leave. Are you going to leave me too? You have the words of eternal life. Who to whom else shall we go? And I would always kind of just end it there. I was like, oh yeah, a lot of people left because of the Eucharist. But no, more people left for, because of the cross. His apostles. Most of his apostles did. Wow, I never, I never made that connection. Um, yes, that was a turning point for me. And what, what the turning point most specifically was when, was when they left. And, and at that moment, and this is what, this is what really helps solidify my belief and desire to receive the Eucharist was he didn't ask him to come back. He didn't say, oh, I'm joking, guys. This, this is just like one of my other parables, you know, or, or a euphemism or analogy or a metaphor, whatever you want to use. Come back. I'm joking. Please don't leave me. He let them go. He let them go. That was that. That was a click. That was a turning point in my mind when it came to the Eucharist. It's like, wow, this is not a symbol. Not even close. Not even. Not even close. An inkling no, of no, not, what it's not supposed even. to be. Not even. He didn't ask. He didn't ask his followers who left to come back. Jesus was radical, man. He was. Yeah. He didn't. He never said it was going to be easy. He never said, "Hey guys, follow me. Things are going to be great for you." No. What did he say? Mm-hmm. And no matter. I mean, no wonder why so many of them left because. One of the worst things that a, that a Jew could do in that time was was to be a cannibal or to eat anything with blood in it or anything. It was that was like the biggest thing. <laughs> right. You want to turn off a Jew? That's what. You, yeah. That's what you say. Well, even think about it too. I mean, obviously, we we have two thousand years of church teaching behind us now, but that's probably exactly what they're they were thinking. It's like, what is this guy talking about? He right, wants us to be a cannibal. I mean, that would probably right. be but, if, yeah. my first instinct yes. too. Yes, but he's still in, in the, he's context. still in the process of of unveiling. No, exactly. Right, and so and so this is going to be made clear. When is this going to be made clear? Well, it's going to be made clear when he institutes the Last Supper, when he goes through his Pasch, his Paschal sacrifice, when he's ascended, and then what? The Holy Spirit descends, and now the church is really going to start growing, and then that's when it's going to be revealed. Mm-hmm. This is what this meant. In John chapter six, the bread of di- bread of life discourse. Right. Now we can see it; it's most fully displayed on in the Eucharist. So it's it's just a beautiful, powerful thing to see at its infancy in John chapter six, two thousand years later till now. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, well, of course, it makes perfect sense. But honestly, if I was a devout Jew, and if if I was, I know I would be a very devout Jew. Just Judaism is beautiful. I, I I love how there's connections with Catholicism and Judaism. And I I might have I might I might have done the same thing. Yeah. It's like what is this guy talking about? You know, think of something that's completely scandalous in your life, and then there's this strange guy who can work these miracles and says says that you have to do something that's scandalous to you and your family and your religion and your community. It's like, I, wow, you're asking a lot of me, Jesus. And he did, and he still does. <laughs> He still asks a lot of us, a lot from us. But never alone. Absolutely not. Never alone. 
Well, that's what the Eucharist does, right? It, we, it, combi- it brings us into the one body of Christ. Like when we talk about the body of Christ, the body of Christ, the body of Christ, we're all one body, all, all these Catholics, and even, even Christians in a very similar way. There's some Christians who still have some of the sacraments, right? Le- legitimate baptisms, right? Marriages. So they're still attached in some way, shape, or form, but they don't have the fullness of faith. So that's why I want to bring all these Protestants, all these non-Catholics, anybody, everybody. One of the reasons I want to be a priest is because of the Eucharist. I want to bring as many people to the Eucharist as possible. Why? Because it unites us as the body of Christ because we all partake of the one flesh, one body. So that's what it means, one body of Christ. And the Eucharist does that because we eat his flesh. We all partake of the flesh. We all partake of the one body. That's what unites us. That's what unites us. You know, when we go to heaven, we're saved as a, as, as a community. <laughs> we are. The Eucharist yeah. unites us as a body, and then we're taken up to God. Jesus takes us to God. There's no other way to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And the only way into Jesus Christ is the Eucharist, his flesh. Now, I can get a lot of kickback from that because, well, everybody else who is not receiving the Eucharist is, is going to go to hell then. You know, how dare you say this? This is why I hate the Catholics. This is why I hate you guys. You say these things. <sighs> Calm down. Take a deep breath. Jesus works outside the sacraments. Yes, he does. He does. All right. And there's parts of Vatican II, Lumen Gentium, Gaudium et Spes that talk about it. But why risk it, man? Right. Why? And like we, like we said, this is God reaching down to us. These are gifts. Take the gift. <laughs> Take the damn gift. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple more verses. And we're kind of... <clears throat> so just a couple more verses I want to touch on. So again, it's from 1 Corinthians, St. Paul. He says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body which you just talked about, Father Dom, for we all partake of the one bread. And then further on, 1 Corinthians, he talks about to do this in remembrance of me. That's going to kind of tie into our next section. But the importance of this ties into the Mass as a sacrifice. And I think there's a big misconception that every time a priest says the words that we're re-sacrificing Jesus on the cross, Right. And so when he says, do this in remembrance of me, again, that was another thing that, oh, that's so th- this is just a symbol, right? He's just remembering me by this, right? But Jesus says these words, Greek word for remembrance is anamnesis. I think that's correct, which has a much yeah. richer meaning than simply memory. Okay. So think of a uh, reminiscence or a memorial sacrifice, right? It's much um, deeper theologically much more meaningful you're you're actually not reenacting the event but you're what's the word i'm looking for uh, your your representation of the one-time sacrifice right is, is what's happening up there and but but calvary is really taking place i mean that's i remember my one of my spiritual directors um old jesuit guy and he was chaplain in, in, in vietnam with uh, with the army, I believe, but you know, he always emphasized in my mind. <laughs> I always remember this is like that's Calvary happening up there. That's Calvary. 
but it's not a reset. It's not, it's not a resacrifice. That's 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 ridiculous. I mean, Jesus is Jesus' body has been down in that end of hell, and then and then raised, glorified, ascended, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. Of of course, it's not. How can we? We there's no way we could, you know, have a re. A re you know, another sacrifice. Right. It's, so it's a one sacrifice that happened and it'll never happen again. But we always, we've always taught that it's a representation of the one-time sacrifice in a sacramental way that truly does make Calvary present. Jesus is outside space and time. He can make that presence. And that's why he says, do this in remembrance of me. Okay, <laughs> we'll do this in remembrance of you. And so that's what, and so that's what we do. So, yeah. Yeah, and then you think of the Jews in the Old Testament too, and then why did they take Passover so seriously? Why was it such a huge celebration for them? Right? It wasn't just, oh, hey guys, you know, a few centuries ago our our ancestors and you know, they were freed from Israel. Like, no, like they take that extremely seriously. It's a huge celebration, huge a community event. It was right? freedom. It's it was a salvation. It was salvation. Yeah, yeah, it's a reminiscence of yes. what happened. And that's exactly what not exactly, but it's because I, I know, I know again, that was another kind of stumbling block. I was like, okay, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Okay, it was just a symbol. Like, okay, so just do this, blah, blah, blah. It's not that big of a deal. It's just remember it as you say it. But no, it's much more in depth. And that, again, that was kind of like the icing on the cake. But when the church celebrates the Eucharist, she commemorates Christ's Passover and is made present. The sacrifice Christ offered once for all on the cross remains ever present. So again, like you talked about, Father, it's not a re-sacrifice. No, what Christ did, we you cannot as a priest replicate that. It's impossible. No, I'm just doing what he he tells me to do. Exactly, and and he takes he takes care of the rest <laughs> through the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and if he and if he says this this bread and this wine changes into the flesh and 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 into my flesh and into my blood, I believe him. I mean, if, 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 if we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, if we believe that he ascended in heaven, if we believe that, you know, he's, he's a Trinitarian God and created everything. And then we'd say, oh, no, no, God can't, God can't do that with bread and wine. Oh, no. So, so what are you saying that God can't do all things? Well, if God can't do all things, then he's not God. So then where are we left? Right. Right. So. So why are we here? Right. Why are we doing this podcast? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I know you talked a little bit about this earlier. Was, so the concept of transubstantiation. So because the Eucharist is the memorial of Christ's Passover, Catholics believe that the Eucharist, of course, truly is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, for you men out there who may not know this, this is actually a dogma of the church. So in current Catholic usage, the term dogma means that it is divinely revealed truth proclaimed as such by the infallible teaching authority of the church and hence binding on all the faithful without exception now and forever. So if you're Catholic, you have to believe in the concept of transubstantiation, right? Yeah, you have to, you have to trust and have faith. That Even if, if you don't if, fully understand if, it. Like, if the Catholic Church says this, and the Catholic Church is the bride of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, with the seven sacraments, meant to help us journey from this life to the next. And this is the way that God is with us until the end of the age and the fullness of everything deposited into the faith in the Catholic church. If the church proclaims something like this, then why would you not believe it? 
The church is a divine institution created by God. It's the bride. It's the bride of Christ. I love it. I love the way St. Paul talks about the bride of Christ and the feminine. And as priests, we're married to her. And my collar is my ring. There's a lot of priests who disagree with that. They don't like nuptial theology, but I do. But if he tells us to do this, and if this is dogma from the church, divinely inspired, that's huge, divinely revealed truth, divinely inspired, I believe it. I may not understand it, and I may not ever understand it, but I'm going to believe it because it comes from the church. And and because of that, it's binding on us. It's then, binding on all the faithful. I mean, that's powerful. But the church, when when the church defines something, the church can never lead us in error. And I think that's something people because people like oh the infallibility of the pope, right? And people that's podcast for a different day, but they totally misunderstand what that actually means because right. the pope can have. I mean, there've been awful popes, okay? Absolutely. Personally, personally, right? But they can never declare something that the church states. When he, when the pope states something that this is what the church believes, he can never say something in error, and that's that's what infallibility no, is. Right, right. He's he's speaking he's speaking with union of of the magisterial of the, of the church too. Right. It's not just him sitting Correct. in the chair yes. of Peter and saying, of I say this now, yeah. you have to believe it. No, right. the, no, there's the magisterial teaching of the church, which means he's going to be speaking from the chair of Peter, but he's going to have the support of cardinals and bishops under him as well. And there's only been what? Um, in, in, we, when, this, when, the pope, when the Pope speaks such a way, we, we say he's speaking ex cathedra. And there's only been, I want to say, only twice where where the where the Pope has proclaimed ex cathedra ex cathedra. I think it was twice with with Mary. But so this next quote I wanted to talk to you guys about was from the Fourth Lateran Council, which took place in 1215 A.D. So this is one indeed is the universal Church of the faithful outside which no one at all is saved in which the priest himself is the sacrifice, Jesus Christ, whose body and blood are truly contained in the sacrament of the altar under the species of bread and wine. The bread changed into his body by the divine power of transubstantiation and the wine into the blood, so that to accomplish the mystery of unity we ourselves receive from his nature what he himself received from ours. Another quote here is from actually the Council of Trent, which says, If anyone denies that in the sacrament of the most holy Eucharist there are truly, really, and substantially contained the body and blood together with the soul and divinity, divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ, but shall say that he is in it as by a sign or figure or force, let him be anathema. So the, the quote by the Lateran Council, I really kind of want to touch on because another kind of controversy floating around is why why can't women be priests, right? Right, right. And the reason, I think I think this is from St. Pope John Paul II. I could be wrong, so don't quote me on that. But I think he, he basically declared that women could never be priests because when the priest says the words to, for, tran- for transubstantiation to occur, he is acting in persona Christi, so in the person of Christ. So he becomes, 
basically in order for the bread and wine to be transformed, he has to become Christ in a, in a, in a sense, to right? Be transubstantiated. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So am I saying that correctly? So, and that's why, because Jesus obviously was a man and that's why women can never be priests because if there are priests that are ordained and they try to do that, nothing, nothing happens. Right. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, it's, I, in the sacraments, the priest works in persona Christi Capitis de Ecclesia, right? J- Jesus Christ, the head of the church. And and I think it's just important to just realize that. So the priest is working in persona Christi Capitis de Ecclesia in Christ, the head of the church, in the sacraments of the church. So not only during the Mass at the consecration, at the transubstantiation but also in the confessional as well you know because in the confessional you know i say i absolve you right in the name of the father and so on and so forth i absolve you like father dominic i I can't i can't absolve you that's ridiculous so in that moment when the priest is saying i absolve you it's it's jesus speaking through the priest and confession is a very powerful and sometimes scary sacrament because there's so much power there because i realize how much jesus is (laughs) Is working through me, and in that moment, his is his healing and saving power working through me, and so even at the altar, at the hands of the priests, it is Jesus working through me, the power of the Holy Spirit. So that is one way of of looking at it. I I didn't think about it that way, James. The way you put it is, you know, if if Jesus, who in his human nature was male. And if he's going to work through human beings as priests at the altar and, and in the sacraments, then yeah, it would make sense to have a male priest working in persona Christi. I didn't think about it that way. I like that. One one way I like looking at it is in scripture, the church, particularly St. Paul, talks about the church as being feminine, the body of Christ, the church. There's always the, the pronoun she. She's yes. feminine. The church the church is feminine in the way that she feeds us and takes care of us, heals us, gives us birth through baptism. She's feminine. And I agree with that 100%. So it would make sense that only males could be priests because during ordination, which looks a lot like a wedding. Yeah, you told me that. I look at it as priests are wed to the bride of Christ in that moment. So a priest who is male is wed to the bride of Christ, who's a female. And because of that union of a male and a female, they can bear fruit. And that fruit in many ways is, is, is the Eucharist. So priests have to be male because they wed that which is female. Hmm. And so that flies in the face of being PC and tolerant with you know, the desire for same-sex marriage and for the church to acknowledge that. Right. The church can never acknowledge that. Not because the church has the power to acknowledge it or not. It's just you can't. It's a reality. You just can't. Marriage is between a male and a female because a male and a female produces fruit. Therefore, a priest has to be male because the bride of Christ, the church, it, she is female. 
and when they're wed on the ordination day, and they can bear fruit, and that takes place at the Eucharist. That, that's the way I look at it. And there's a lot of theology out there behind that as well. And again, this comes from nuptial theology, and priests balk at that. And, but I, I, I don't. I don't. So that's, that's the way I look at priests who, uh, who need to be men. <laughs> you know, yeah. Men become priests. No, it makes perfect and I don't, sense. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No. It, you know, but I guess, you know, it's not PC radical, radical feminists want to destroy everything that, that men can do and they can't, quote unquote. So, hey, let's just go after that and try to destroy it and prove that we can do it too. I just think it's funny because people have accused the Catholic Church of denigrating women when Oh my gosh. Besides Jesus, who's the most honored person in the church? Yeah. His mother. Yeah, Mary. Yeah, pray for us. <laughs> pray for us, yeah. <laughs> but I mean that's one of the things radical feminism did in the beginnings of the fifties and sixties is they took Mary, stripped her of her mantle, and brought her down to their level. It's like okay, well now what do what do women have to look up to? The ultimate woman. Yeah. Mary. So when you yeah, so when you take her down from her her high place of of beauty and majesty and example, it's now what? Now what do you have? Yeah. Yeah. So to end this week, sorry boys, this is another James challenge. Father Dom and me keep talking too long, so I have to keep splitting these episodes up, but not important for this week. It's going to be a big one. It'll carry over to next week, but I want you all to go to Mass more than once, more than just on Sunday. I know for some of you, just starting to go to Mass every week has probably been a challenge, so I'm going to up the ante. I want you all to try to go to a daily Mass this week. Doesn't matter the day. Just pick a day and just go. Look up a local church. Look up Catholic churches near me. Just Google it. I think there's an app called Mass Mass Near Me that you can look it up. Just type in your zip code. But try to go. If you can't go to Mass, go to Adoration. So I guess this is part 1A, part 1B challenge. If you can't get to Mass, for whatever reason, understand family, obligations, things like that, go to Adoration then. Sit in front of the Eucharist and just be present with Jesus for more than just on Sunday. And just see what happens. Nothing might happen or might just completely change your perspective on your life. So that is my challenge for this week. I also want to end by thanking our wonderful partners, Hallow from Hallow. An amazing, just an incredible, incredible app. And speaking of adoration, they actually have features where it's a holy hour. So you literally can listen to music for 30 or 60 minutes, listen to the Psalms for 30 or 60 minutes, words of Jesus for 30 or 60 minutes. They also even just have a holy hour playlist where it gives you kind of variety. So again, uh, this is from the app Hallow. For our listeners only, you get an extended 30-day free trial. And if you want to use that feature, you do have to use their premium content subscription. Uh, but again, for our listeners only, you get a 30-day extended free trial. Uh, 
you can follow the link. I'm sorry, click on the link in the show notes, or you can just type in hallow.com backslash the manly catholic. That's all lowercase hallow.com slash backslash the manly catholic. Highly recommend it, not only for a holy hour, but just to uh, expand your prayer life. You can listen to Daily Saints, do the Our Father, Hail Mary, traditional Catholic prayers, and also learn a ton of new great content that can expand your prayer life. So uh, that's my little spiel. Again, click on the link. That being said, next week will be part three, our final part in the session on the Eucharist. And it's going to be talking more primarily about the controversy that's going on in the church currently about the USCCB, President Biden, Catholic politicians who are clearly not supporting Catholic teaching. Should they receive the Eucharist? Should they not? So uh, tune in next week. That's something you will not want to miss. Um, But until then, again, the challenge this week, boys, try to get to Mass more than once. Or if, if you can't do that for whatever reason, get to adoration. Get in front of the Eucharist at least 30 minutes, an hour if you can, and it'll change your life. So until next week, I'm James with Father Dominic, and we will see you all next time on The Manly Catholic. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of The Manly Catholic. If you have not already done so, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. It will also help grow the show and reach as many men as possible. We truly think this podcast can change families and help men to change the world. Thank you again so much for tuning in and God bless you.